welcome to the Hell Project podcast. This is where I share all of the results of the research and reading that I've done on the doctrine of hell over the last few years. Uh, I defend the view that uh, without Jesus, we are all dead. Uh, This is the view called conditionalism, and I believe there's better news in it than the traditional understanding of hell. And I try to defend that here. The audio quality may not be that high as it's taken off my YouTube channel and unfortunately some of the streams do have technical glitches but I hope that you stick with it and uh, do let me know what you think, share, uh, get involved through Twitter or even comment on my YouTube channel. I look forward to hearing back from you. Enjoy the show. It's live. Sorry about the dodgy start. Um, So John MacArthur is uh, a preacher who has 600,000, almost getting on for 700,000 views on his sermon. Uh, I thought I'd respond to it because he says he's read The Fire That Consumes by Edward Fudge, but the way he presents uh, annihilationism, even presenting how I, I think is lacking in grace towards those who hold different views. But... Uh, I'm going to try and remain gracious to him, I think, as a preacher and, uh, well, I, I think he he would claim to be a biblical scholar. I um, would hold him with such an amount of views to, to a higher uh, standard of scholarship. Um, so I, I hope I don't come across too strong. I'm going to try and be as gracious as I can to him. Uh, but if you claim to read a book and then misrepresent the arguments within that book, I think that's not um, fair representation. So I don't think that's a good thing to do. But we'll see what he has to say. I'm going to respond to him. I'm going to try and keep this video to about half an hour. We'll see how that goes. I'm not sure I'll be able to get through much of his talk. Um, but I'm going to select a few bits that I think will be useful. Just in terms of news on the channel, before I do this, um, I will be hopefully interacting with Inspiring Philosophy in the middle of December. Uh, Watch out for that live stream just to talk through his video on hell, which is very much a separationist view of uh, eternal ongoing torment. There's a lot of quotations from C.S. Lewis. Um, I'm hoping to engage with him. I think there's a lot that I agree with um, him on in terms of his other videos. Um, but I just want to discuss how he came to the view of hell that he has and, and whether or not he's engaged with any other views. So look out for that. I'm also looking forward to having Chris Date uh, to interact with in January. Um, we'll get the Christmas period out of the way and we'll engage with those guys uh, soon enough. So I'm still trying to develop this channel. I'm still getting used to um, live streaming and hopefully you'll find this whole thing engaging. So, John MacArthur, let's hear what he has to say about hell. Being saved. One of the people being baptized tonight made reference to being saved. What are we talking about? What is it we want people saved from? That is the compelling question. The answer to that question, as far as Scripture is concerned, is a simple answer. We want to see people saved from eternal punishment, eternal punishment, punishment that never ends. Okay, 
So, eternal punishment straight off is a direct quote from the uh, Bible, from Matthew 25. Um, I can show it to you here. So, then they will go to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Straight away, John MacArthur's read that as uh, punishment that never ends. And I suppose that would make sense of eternal punishment. Let's see what else he has to say about this ongoing punishment. Conscious. Ah, okay. So, conscious ongoing punishment there's no note of consciousness in the direct quote of Matthew 25 uh, even in context it talks about um, being cursed thrown into an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels it doesn't say that those who go into that fire will remain conscious so he's got that idea from somewhere existence, else existence conscious life in a body resurrected and suited for everlasting punishment. Okay, so he's read aspects of 1 Corinthians 15 that talks about a resurrected body uh, into this passage. Um, I would say that's a bit of a far fetch to to go. If you're going to explain eternal punishment, there are better verses to go to. Uh, I would recommend um, Romans 6.23, which says the wages of sin is death. That sounds like the punishment for sin is death. Uh, The other one is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Those two sound like they complement this passage quite well in saying what the punishment, the result for sin, or the result for rejection of God, Uh, will be it sounds to me like death maybe John will define death later on um, but his use of consciousness and his use of um, yeah trying to explain what eternal punishment his use of 1 Corinthians 15 when actually in context if you read through 1 Corinthians 15 it's very much the resurrected bodies uh, for those who are given immortal bodies um, that would be for the righteous, those who um, rise to be judged. There's no sign that they will gain uh, immortality. They will not gain uh, an extra body that will withstand the heat that I think John MacArthur will start referring to in a bit. Um, so he's read stuff into 1 Corinthians 15, which is then read into Matthew 25, which I don't think is a strong argument. The Bible speaks of that as occurring in a place that we know as hell. In the Old Testament, the word Sheol makes reference to that in a general way. In the New Testament, the word Hades is sometimes with reference to that. But always the word hell, coming from the Greek word Gehenna. So I think here... John should know better. Gehenna isn't a good uh, translation of hell, or hell isn't a good translation of Gehenna. Hell means to uh, uncover, to it's about uh, something unseen. It potentially comes from the Nordic version of the underworld, um, which is a better representation of the words Hades and Sheol. Uh, which are the realms of the dead. When you're buried, you go to Sheol. Uh, Genesis 37 talks about um, Jacob wanting to go down to Sheol to meet Joseph. 
Um, that means that Sheol and Hades are the place where the righteous and the unrighteous go, which causes problems if it's also the place of the lake of fire, which I'll let John McCarthy speak a bit more. Speaks of what the book of Revelation calls this lake of fire where people are punished and tormented forever. Okay, so the lake of fire is referenced in Revelation 2010 uh, and is called the second death. The lake of fire is the second death. So second death kind of relates to death being uh, what we see in Genesis 3, the return to dust. The curse of sin is death in Genesis. And the at the end of that curse, we hear what death is. It's the for, from dust you are to dust you shall return. So um, the lake of fire being the second death is also problematic for this view. If Sheol, Hades... Uh, and Hades are the same as Gehenna and the same as the Lake of Fire. If you read Revelation 20, uh, the whole thing, Hades and she- Hades and death, which death is intertwined with Sheol as well, are thrown into the Lake of Fire, meaning that they're destroyed. And um, traditionalist authors all recognise that Hades and Sheol will be no more. But if He's saying that Gehenna and Hell and Sheol and Hades are all the same thing. It's problematic that the same thing is destroying itself. Also problematic that those not in the Book of Life are thrown into the Lake of Fire only at, in, in Revelation. Um, so there's some problematic chronology that, that has to be worked through, which John unfortunately isn't going to be doing in this video. Um, I say unfortunate because... Surely the people listening to this are reading their Bibles and have questions, I'd hope. I'd hope there'd be some questions. Um, We'll let them speak. I think we sort of comfortably distance ourselves from that reality. Certainly in general, in the church, it is looked over, passed by, ignored. There are those who claim to be preachers who don't ever talk about hell, wouldn't talk about hell, avoid it at all costs, when the truth of the matter is it ought to be the first thing that we talk about when we talk about the gospel. This is a... Now, I find that an interesting point because if hell was such an important thing for the gospel, then... Why don't the disciples talk about it more when they're preaching in Acts? Uh, in Acts, they say things like uh, destruction in early Acts, but they don't talk about an eternal conscious torment. Acts is completely silent, and that is also where we get most of our ideas of a gospel preach from. In fact, the John will go on to say that Jesus spoke more than anyone else put together on hell. If the New Testament authors didn't think it was that important to talk about what John has to read into the text, the eternal conscious torment, then it's a little bit odd that such an important thing that we should put first and foremost into our gospel presentations is missing from the New Testament. Um, We'll look at some of the New Testament passages in a bit, but I find it fascinating that John is saying we should talk about hell first and foremost, I disagree. Uh, I don't see that. And we'll kind of look at 
why as we go through in this this channel and other videos but if acts is silent the apostles are silent on on this so-called important doctrine then maybe the traditional view is not quite as solidly founded as john would have you believe about salvation from hell the doctrine of hell the truth of hell the reality of hell has found its way into the thinking of our culture. According to the latest survey that I could find, 75% of people living in America believe in hell. They believe there's a hell. That's the influence of Christianity, 75%. Of those 75%, 4% believe there is any chance that they will ever go there. So we've gotten our point across. There is a hell. But we haven't gotten the point across that you're headed there already. Okay, so I've, I'm going to jump ahead to some other aspects where John starts talking about annihilationism. I find, yeah, as I've already said, the culture does um, agree that there is a hell, though they would say that it's for someone else, not ourselves, which is fair enough. We don't like to think about the sin that might be, uh, that we're responsible for. That's that's a fair view of, of the culture. Um, but again, it doesn't seem to be the the main point of the gospel preachers in the new testament to really hammer home that everyone is going to hell um i don't see it i don't see the language there i don't see the backing up in the new testament and i don't even see it in jesus preaching but we're going to look at that in a moment so let me just skip ahead i believe he starts preaching on uh jesus and hell at about 13 minutes in hell because of its horrible reality Turn to Luke 16 for a moment. And in Luke 16, you have Jesus actually telling a story about a man who went to hell. So I'm just going to skip back very quickly to the 13 Failure, or He wants to save you from sickness, or He wants to save you from dis- disappointment. No, no he, he desires to save you from hell, from the fiery hell, the lake of fire that is eternal. The message of Scripture is that salvation is a rescue, a rescue from a real place called hell. Jesus spoke more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. In fact, He spoke more about hell than everybody else in the Bible combined. Interesting. And He defined it as conscious, eternal punishment. Okay, that is not true. (laughs) That is just not true. There is nowhere in the bible that jesus uses the words eternal conscious punishment he uses eternal punishment and we see throughout the gospels that that punishment is death uh, not an ongoing torment um sorry conscious eternal punishment our lord jesus believed in eternal hell we'll talk about some of the things that he said about it in a little bit He continually spoke about hell, and He warned sinners to escape hell because of its horrible reality. 
Turn to Luke 16 for a moment. And in Luke 16, you have Jesus actually telling a story about a man who went to hell. You will remember this. There was a rich man, Luke 16, 19. He habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And there was a poor man named Lazarus who was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That's kind of an Old Testament reference to a place of comfort, a place of peace where Abraham is. And Abraham, of course, was a true believer as the father of faith who received righteousness because he believed. So this would be heaven. And there went the poor man. The rich man, on the other hand, died and was buried in Hades which, of course, here refers to hell because of the way it's described. He lifted up his eyes. Okay, so he's already assuming a picture of hell through uh, this text. It's not necessarily a, a good way of reading Scripture, but he's already ma- made an assumption there that he's assumed this is what Jesus is talking about. Being in torment. And saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. This is a parable and there are some names the Lord uses. He doesn't usually use names in parables, but on this occasion He did. He used the name of Lazarus and Abraham. And this rich man who is shocked that he has ended up in hell cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. So now Jesus tells us this is a place that you go to after death. This is a place of torment. This is a place of thirst. This is a place of agony. This is a place of fire. All of that is in what we just read. Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. Now he's being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and none may cross over from there to us." Once you're there, you're there forever. No escape. This is our Lord's story. Whoa, okay, so that hasn't finished. Um, Luke 16, let me just jump there quickly. Uh, there's far more to that passage. This is very selective what John MacArthur's done there. So actually, we've got this chasm is fixed, sure, um, but actually the story goes on. Um, the rich man is asking for Lazarus to be sent back to his family so that others can be saved. Now what that shows is that uh, Hades, whatever that is, whether this is just a story or whether it's a real place, is currently in existence and if if this is a real place it's a it's currently in existence and uh people are in torment there but it does 
doesn't mean this is post-judgment. If we take this to be a literal place, there are some serious issues to be considered that John MacArthur just jumps over. First off, the message of the story is actually in verse 31. So it says, he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced if someone rises from the dead. This story is pointing to a resurrection, it's pointing to Jesus' resurrection, saying that the Jews who do not uh, trust the prophets and those before Jesus who point to Jesus will not be convinced by Jesus when he is risen from the dead. There is something about this parable that's far bigger than your view of hell. And so John MacArthur is looking very directly into this, already assuming that it's the uh, product of judgment. It's this hell. But there's some significant problems I've highlighted when Bill Weiss did the same thing, and, and many traditionalists do this, is that there's no sign of judgment here, which is the orthodox view of uh, Christian uh, judgment, is we all die, we are all raised, and then we are judged. And those in the book of life go to heaven, which is the new creation mind, not this extra place in another realm. And those who are not in the book of life are in the lake of fire, Gehenna, which is the second death. Um, and we'll look at that in a bit more detail in a moment. So Luke 16 causes more problems for this idea that it's ongoing eternal torment because judgment hasn't happened yet. The rich man is send, trying to get Lazarus to be sent back to his living family. And there's just so many problematic things from the gospel. This seems to insinuate that just being poor, having your sores looked by dogs will get you into paradise or heaven and just being rich will get you into hell. That's not the gospel. And so John MacArthur's view here of just let's look at it really intensely and point out, yes, there's something about thirst. Yes, there's something about torment. Yes, there's something about flame. Therefore, hell is quite a leap. And it's it's not a helpful leap for people who are reliant on you as a preacher to gain access to what Jesus is actually teaching. So accuracy is needed. And whether or not you view uh, have hell in mind when you read this it's far more difficult to get that as the message of this story uh, whereas the context of Luke 16 is about money it's about your love of money is actually sending you into a place of judgment it's not sending you to where you think which the Pharisees thought when they told stories like this because this has a similar structure to rabbinic tales of the time uh, they thought that having money was a sign of God's blessing and therefore would get them into paradise. There's far more to this story than what John MacArthur is telling his audience here. And so it's quite a frustration to see that um, from such a well-viewed video. This, it's just pure inaccuracy. So um, we're going to continue to, to listen to him, but that's, that's frustrating. hell. Was the Son of God wrong about that? Are the deniers of hell correct? And there are many, many... Okay, so he's going to get into an interesting bit. But So basically, if you don't agree with John MacArthur's view of Luke 16 pointing to hell, then you're a denier of hell. That's kind of the insinuation here. It's not very gracious, but I think actually he's done a disservice to the power of Luke 16 to those who heard it. Uh, Jesus is talking about money and talking about uh, his 
not necessarily going to save you. I think there's far more to it than, than just let's look at a view of hell that we've already agreed to. So let's listen to what he has to say about those who deny Any hell. of them. It has become popular these days to deny the doctrine of hell in one of three ways, okay? Give you a little insight into that. Number one is the view called annihilationism. Annihilationism. This says unbelievers go out of existence. When they die, they just go out of existence. They don't exist anymore. Okay, so he's emphasizing the word existence. That is not annihilationism per se. I, th I think there's an argument for what you mean by existence. I think if if life is existence and death is non-existence, then, then sure, we, we could argue non-existence. But actually, annihilationists and con those who hold to conditional immortality would argue that it is only those who are righteous will go into eternal life and gain immortality. Your immortality is conditional on your faith in Christ. And so therefore, if you do not have faith in Christ, if you reject God... The only outcome that you can face is death or the cessation of life. And so you'll, you'll see a real emphasis on this idea of existence like we're talking about poof, there, there's n nothing there, nothing left. Um, that's not the argument. Death doesn't necessarily mean there isn't a corpse and we'll, we'll look at some scripture around that in a minute. But death doesn't mean you live on and experience either. Death means... As the Bible says in Genesis 3, from, de from dust you are made to dust you shall return. It's a end of life, end of experience, uh, cessation of being, though there might be a remainder of you as a corpse. Um, let, let's see where he goes with that. That the Bible doesn't support, since the Bible speaks of eternal conscious punishment. Okay, so there's there's never a phrase eternal conscious punishment that that just isn't in the Bible. The second view that is offered, and by the way, people give very sophisticated arguments for this. I read a book, 475 pages on annihilationism, trying to make the argument from the text of Scripture called the fire that consumes. And there are many others, many others. So The Fire That Consumes is written by Edward Fudge, who, if you Google him and watch his videos, he's probably one of the most humble preachers you'll see out there, continually wondering if he is uh, reading things incorrectly, but completely against this view that God would completely torment, uh, continually torment uh, sinners forever and ever. The book is extremely well-founded, has a lot of references to the to the Bible delves far more deeply into Scripture than John MacArthur, who can't even say the say Edward Fudge's name for whatever reason. Um, I don't think he's read it. I think if you read Edward Fudge, you at least come out with a better understanding of what annihilationism says, uh, and we'll we'll see how wrong he gets it in, in a minute. Recently, a, a book. Uh Question the doctrine of hell and advocating an annihilationist view was written by a man named Rob Bell. 
No. <laughs> Rob Bell, the whole controversy, if you remember, this video is from 2012. The whole controversy of Rob Bell was that he was universalist, at least that's the tone of the book. And that's what the controversy is. So he, he's got the wrong guy with the wrong argument um, and clearly not engaged with the book. Second we'll, we'll possibility that is offered today is universalism. Universalism. This says that all unbelievers are, in the end, saved. They don't go out of existence. They're saved. These people would say, yes, there is a hell, and this is where they hedge against the first one. There is a hell, but hell was created for the devil and his angels. And that is what it says, of course, in the book of Revelation. So they're the only ones who will go there. In the Roman Catholic University, Fordham University in New York, there's a theological professor who said this, it's there, hell is, but possible that no one will go there. Now, that's a universalist view that in the end, God is going to save everybody. That doesn't match with Scripture because the whole message of Scripture is that the ungodly are forever excluded from God's presence and forever punished. If everybody is saved in the end, then everything in the Bible that speaks of eternal punishment is unbelie unbelievable. Okay, so it says everything that speaks of eternal punishment is unbelievable. There's only one time eternal punishment is referenced. That's in Matthew 25. There is another phrase called eternal destruction, which is in uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, and uh, that's about it, um, unless you start reading eternal fire as eternal punishment, and eternal fire is used in Jude 7, which says it's what um, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed by eternal fire as an example of what would happen to the ungodly. So eternal fire doesn't necessarily mean... Um, a fire that's continually burning because Sodom and Gomorrah didn't continually burn. We'll look into that in a bit more detail sure. in a moment. So whether you have all the sinners die or all the sinners get saved, or die, go out of existence, or get saved, you still don't explain what the Bible says about everlasting punishment. So just on that note, if death is the eternal punishment, what I mean by that is the the wages of sin is death. Uh, if you don't have Christ, you perish. Those are the verses from John 3.16 and Romans 6.23. To face eternal punishment then, death is an eternal punishment if you never return from it. You are continually under God's wrath because you aren't living. You aren't in existence or at least in experience. There might be some aspect of you materially, maybe, uh, and the reason I say maybe is because the images we get from the Old Testament is a valley of slaughter. That's what Gehenna points to in Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah 19. Uh, in Isaiah 66, 24, we see uh, a, f a field of corpses that are being looked on uh, by the righteous. Corpses don't uh, aren't animated. They are dead. And that's where the unquenchable fire and uh, worms will not die verses come from but the corpses of the people are dead uh, and so the punishment being eternal is an eternal death that you aren't resurrected from that is absolutely 
uh, acceptable within the syntax of what eternal punishment means, um, both in English and in Greek. It is also uh, makes sense of eternal destruction. A corpse is a person that is destroyed, and if they aren't resurrected, then they are eternally destroyed. Um, so, yes, we can make sense of eternal punishment. We can make sense of that, and we aren't necess- necessitating uh, that the person is obliterated uh, and vaporized, or whatever, whatever else you want to suggest. Um, it works in harmony with Scripture. There's a third view called, we'll call it inclusivism. So, annihilationism, universalism, inclusivism, that would be my word for it. Some people will go to hell and not the rest have the same problem because they don't have any support for their view in the Bible at all. And they tend to be weak on the view of Scripture and just throw away the verses that they don't like. Okay, so just as a point on that, he he doesn't represent universalism well. He doesn't represent other views well. Basically says they don't believe in Scripture, which is... just lacking in grace. If you read the book uh, Four Views on Hell, you will notice that all views hold Scripture highly and are trying to figure out what hell is, does, why it's there, and who goes there. There needs to be more graciousness around this debate. It's not as clear-cut as John MacArthur would have us believe. Um, I would say the traditional view, John MacArthur's view, is actually the weakest of the views, and it doesn't help when those who hold it um, present fairly weak arguments and then attack straw men. Um, it's not helping us who don't no longer hold to ECT or eternal conscious torment uh, to return to that view, because we just see the view that we now hold being straw manned, um, and that's not helpful. It doesn't help debate, and it actually sets up a weak view of eternal conscious torment. Now, I've tried to present a strong view of eternal conscious torment in my video on it. Feel free to look at that if you aren't sure what I mean. The, the dominant view is that first one I gave you called annihilationism, and I want to talk about that a little bit because you're going to face it somewhere. It's a trendy thing. It's a popular idea. Some most remarkably useful, blessed, effective, capable teachers of the Bible have lapsed into annihilationism. So I think that's trying to be gracious. But if you talk about John Stott, who's lapsed, that lapsed isn't a positive. So According to John, if you disagree with him on this view, then you are a lapsed Christian, I guess, a a lapsed preacher. Or, I'm just going to put it out there, you read scripture and you see that it says something different. I'm just going to put it out there. Or as it's sometimes called, soul sleep. No. Conditional immortality is not called soul sleep. Now, this is presented by several people who hold the traditional view. There's also a guy named Matt Slick. Uh, Calm.org has presented a huge bunch of articles against uh, conditional immortality. There's nothing that necessitates soul sleep in this view. Uh, Soul sleep is just one aspect of what happens to you after death. And actually, annihilationism is more focused on after judgment. Um, Soul sleep is just a bit between 
death and judgment and whether or not you're conscious so to say that annihilationism focuses on soul sleep that's there's a red herring it's got nothing to do with it and um some would say soul sleep is a heresy i think that's what john is trying to do he's trying to poison the well that those who have lapsed into annihilationism have lapsed into soul sleep and therefore they are bordering on heresy avoid us we are heretics unfortunately uh, i disagree and i'm not even sure where i stand on soul sleep at the moment i think there's some valid discussions around it but it's unnecessary to this conversation and i think there's not enough data in the bible to really sit one way or the other if you disagree with that feel free to put it in the comments if you watch this it's the popular idea because it feels comfortable and it feels fair to the people who make a case for it now how do they make their case so just to say it's not about my feelings um i held to traditional view for a long time and then i read scripture and i just didn't see eternal conscious torment as a valid view anymore uh that's that's it. it it wasn't emotional though i think an emotional case can be made against eternal conscious torment that is just as valid as a scriptural well maybe not as valid but there is a strong case that can be made that our emotions are being redeemed by the holy spirit as we journey with christ therefore as we journey with him we look to see justice uh dealt with um we, we look to, to see the sinner dealt with more fairly and we see a God who is more merciful and therefore eternal conscious torment just does not flow out of a just and merciful God. I think that's a, a fairly, maybe not presented very well, but that is a fair emotional argument that can be presented. But that's not why many of us became convinced of this view. Many of us read scripture, read verses that aren't taught in preachers like this, like Jeremiah like Isaiah and the connections between the Old Testament and the Revelation aren't presented well other views aren't presented fairly and then we come to a different opinion so no this isn't just an emotional argument uh, and we'll see actually John makes a really good case for conditional immortality in this next bit how do you make a case for unbelievers just being obliterated exterminated wiped out forever Okay, just a reminder, we don't make that case. John makes that against us, though that is a straw man. We, just to remind you, we make the case that the wages of sin is death, that those who do not have the Son will not see life, John 3.36. There's loads of others. Basically, death is the outcome of not following Christ. And uh, that's that's the presentation. That's That's the view. The cessation of experience, the privation of life is a, a way that Chris Date from Rethinking Hell defines it. You don't exist as an experience um, can be argued. I'm, I'm happy to say you don't exist, but apparently that's a hang-up for, for many people. Uh, you, you will not experience your existence, whether or not your body remains. Uh, so we'll, we'll let him present the next bit and then I think their we'll first argument up. comes from the verse I read you in Matthew 10 verse 28 fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell they tend to go there and they like that word destroy all right okay so just just a point that I've already talked about the verses that I go to I would also say that one of the strongest arguments against the traditional view is actually the new creation 
that's my favourite at the moment. The new creation is that there'll be no more death, no more pain, no more mourning. God will dwell with his people. The whole earth will be recreated. We will have resurrected bodies to enjoy that new earth. And that is for the resurrected righteous. Um, that's a stronger argument that there's not going to be some pocket called hell in the new creation where there's no more sin, no more death, no more pain, no more mourning. We would be mourning if our loved ones were in a pocket of hell being tormented forever and ever. So actually, that's I'd say that's a stronger view. But yeah, Matthew ten twenty eight is a pretty strong verse because it's quite clearly stating that in the context... Don't fear those who kill you, uh, your body. Fear the one who can kill, destroy your body and soul. That sounds pretty convincing to me, but feel free I, to carry on. I want on. to use that word destroy. Stick with me because it's going to be helpful to you. That's a Greek word, apollomy. Apollomy. You, you, that may sound a little bit familiar in your ear because in Revelation 9-11, Satan is given the name Apollyon the destroyer. Apollomy is the word to destroy. But as it is not its only um, meaning. That's not the only possibility. But they say that word says that the ones who are under the judgment of God will be destroyed, both soul and body, in hell. That's what it says. Yeah, I'm happy with that. So that they would uh, go to hell and then be wiped out and exterminated, annihilated forever. Non-existent. Well, they'll, they'll be destroyed. Is that the correct um, understanding of that word? Fortunately, we have that word 80 times in the New Testament. So we get a good breadth of understanding about how the verb apollomy is used. It has very broad meaning. In Matthew 2.13, it is the word used where it says in that verse, Herod desired to destroy the baby. That sounds like death, that the baby would be killed. Yep. Herod wasn't thinking about soul annihilation. I don't think uh, Jesus was either. Why you start bringing soul annihilation, what Jesus is thinking of is death, uh, is being killed. It makes perfect sense. If, if man can't kill the soul, but God can, well, what's the end result of being killed? You no longer exist, I suppose. It sounds legitimate and is a good use of apollomy. He was thinking about murder. Yep, death. In Matthew eight twenty five, in the immediate danger of the storm, the disciples are afraid. And they are afraid of drowning. So in Matthew yeah, 8, 25, yeah. the word apollomy has to do with drowning. In Luke 5:37, we hear a parable from Jesus about putting new wine in old wineskins, and the wineskins crack and break. And that's the same verb, apollomy, ruined wineskins. Okay, when we talk about ruined wineskins, they no longer have a function. They no longer function as a purpose. How does that apply to a human? It sounds like a corpse. It sounds like a human that doesn't function in the way that they are designed to. Our purpose is to function as we uh, relate to God. We are given the gift of life. That is what our purpose is. If we are ruined, destroyed, it 
Sounds like a corpse. In Luke 15, it's used three times to speak of a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. So the word can mean to kill, to drown, to render useless, such as the case of wineskins, or to be lost. Yep, uh, I think lost is fine as well uh, when we're talking about someone who dies. Um, just as a little hint as to what I'm talking about, Isaiah 66:24 talks about uh, the great judgment. And uh, verse 24, they will go out and look on the dead bodies, corpses of uh, those who rebelled against God. So those all sound, they sound like they'd be lost. You could say that. We often say that someone who has died is lost. Um, so I'm, I'm happy with all that. That's uh, a good case for, for annihilationism. Uh, what else? John 6, 27. There's a statement about food that perishes, and that is the, uh, that's the word apollomy. Interestingly... Food that perishes will eventually rot and disappear out of existence. It will become no longer a fruit. So, um, again, that, that's a perfect example of death to me. It sounds like annihilationism. Perishables. Uh, food that is corrupted and useless. It definitely doesn't go on forever consciously. In John seventeen twelve. Our Lord says, none of uh, those that you have given to me, Father, have perished but the son of perdition. Judas perished. Did he go out of existence? No. Jesus said he went, not out of existence, but he went to his own place. He went to his own place. <coughs> Some of you can experience this personally. I know I can. Luke 21 is referring to the loss of hair. Yes, Austin, you can deal with that, can't you? Can I have a witness? <laughs> In Acts 8.20, uh, you, you remember the confrontation between Peter and Simon the magician, and Simon is trying to buy the Holy Spirit, and Peter says, may your money perish with you. Romans 14:15 do not destroy with food the one for whom Christ died. In Mark 14:4 it's used of perfume that is spilled. Why has this perfume been wasted? says Judas about pouring perfume on Jesus. So it is possible to translate the word destroy, but it is not the word for annihilation, obliteration, not well, it kind of is, even in English, annihilate, destroy, utterly. I'm just going to transition here. Annihilate, destroy, utterly, obliterate. We have destroy, end the existence of something, ruin emotionally or spiritually, defeat someone utterly. I, I think that works fairly well, to be honest, of annihilation. Um, so, are we playing word games? I think all of those examples can actually strengthen the argument of annihilationism. If you are perishing, if you're a, a fruit that's perishing, then you you don't think of it being consciously tormented. So actually, I would argue John Arthur uh, MacArthur is actually in danger of reading into all of those things, eternal torment, when it just doesn't fit. Destroy means 
kill, especially in the context where it's talking about don't be afraid of those who can kill you. So there's quite a lot in there. I, th I think we've heard enough. I'm going to give him a little bit more time to play, um, but I might stop this. We're at 50 minutes already, and um, I think he's made quite a strong case, actually, that a good interpretation of a polymy is actually, uh, in, in the context of Matthew 10.28, a really strong argument for conditional immortality. Um, I might make a part two of this, um, but it's getting late here, and I want people to watch this and not go on too long. So I'm just going to leave it at that, um, and I hope you've enjoyed this live stream. Hopefully I haven't ranted too much. Um, I think John MacArthur needs to be a little bit more gracious, and I don't know if I've been gracious to him. Hopefully I have. Um, as I said, there's going to be future videos coming out with other things. I'm not sure they'll all be live stream. I've got one on Luke 16 that I'm preparing. I'm currently reading a little bit more on. I just have to shout out to uh, Roger Harper if he's watching this. I have got his book, uh, which I'm looking forward to reading. He argues for a literal reading of Luke 16 and that it explains Revelation uh, with the view of Hades being the real place in Luke 16, but also while holding to annihilationist view, which I find fascinating. And I've always thought Luke 16 was a parable and should be read as such and not necessarily a parable in a real place. So I'm looking forward to reading that. And uh, if you want a taste of what he um, argues, go on to Rethinking Hell's website and uh, find his article on Luke 16 there so i'm going to end here thank you for watching i hope that uh though there's not many people viewing maybe i need to advertise my live streams a little bit more uh in time hope you find it helpful feel free to comment what do you think have i been fair to john MacArthur? have i given any weak arguments have i misrepresented any arguments please do let me know if you have any other videos you'd like me to respond to, please do look at the To Respond To playlist or just send me a link. So thanks for watching. Uh, this is The Hell Project where I defend the view that without Jesus, we are all dead. See you later. Thank you for listening and I want to know what you think. Do get in touch. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, can do that through uh, Twitter or my YouTube channel, but I also have the scripts and free resources and other studies that I'm continuing to engage with at uh, thehellproject.online. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to support the channel and uh, the show in any way, please do go into the description of this episode and you can find a PayPal link. Otherwise, I do this all for free and I hope you found it helpful. God bless you. See you later.